very special guest here, good friend of mine, and uh, someone with really, really unique experience. Not not a lot of folks have uh, his uh, line of experience and uh, his his mindfulness and thoughtfulness around leadership in general. Uh, we have Dr. Bernardo here too. Rich, how are you? Doing well. Pleasure Great. to be here. Pleasure. To, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to Lloyd. Excellent. So uh, we have Lloyd Thrall here. Welcome, Lloyd. Um, so to start, let's just a little bit, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, our viewers, a little bit about you, and then we'll get into uh, your leadership style and your thoughts on uh, innovation and leadership and sort of a bit, the big picture of how you, you, uh, you, you view leadership overall. Well, thanks, Al. I'm, I'm humbled to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. My name is Lloyd Thrall. Uh, I've spent my life in the national security uh, community of the United States, uh, in and out of uniform, uh, starting as an enlisted special operator uh, in the Army, uh, in the Ranger Regiment, uh, moving on from there into the intelligence community, uh, serving in places like Iraq. Uh, afterwards, the Rand Corporation, where I did a, a fair amount of, of uh, senior commentary and research on American foreign policy, and then concluding in government as a civilian two-star equivalent uh, in the Obama administration, uh, where I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Readiness. Uh, that's a, a general officer equivalent position, um, advising the Secretary and the Congress, reporting to them at least quarterly uh, on American foreign policy, on, on matters of strategy and force deployment. Uh, after that, I've, I've moved back to Colorado where I'm, I'm an academic. I'll be starting at the um, Air Force Academy this summer. Excellent. Great. Um, love that range of experience. And uh, uh, I've had many conversations with you just to learn about some of the, some of the things you've uh, gone through, experienced. Not, not a lot of people have just that White House experience alone. So it's, it's a pretty cool uh, background that you have. So Lloyd, I, I was lucky enough to work with you in a, a leadership capacity for um, a short time, but enough to really get to know you well. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of your approach to leadership in general, um, how you, you kind of work with others, uh, innovation in leadership. Like, what's your style? What's, what, what does a guy with a military background but still has academic uh, footing now too. So you have a real, this really unique blend of military, academic, uh, government, uh, really interesting mix. How has that sort of shaped your leadership style? What is your leadership style for, for, uh, for viewers? Oh, that's kind of you. I, I hope I can do the military credit. Um, you know, it's funny. I saw, um, I saw something the other day about military service. It was a TED talk that was very interesting. And the title of the TED talk almost says it all. And the, the title was, thank you for my service. And, and what the guy was trying to say, it said very well, was that, um, hey, the military invested in me and gave to me at least as much as I gave to it. Um, it was a wonderful background for me, uh, particularly coming out of high school, 18 years old. Um, having a whole lot of energy and, and not a whole lot of sense. Um, and, you know, the, the military, for obvious reasons, takes leadership very seriously. Uh, and it's a very old study. Um, I mean, not to put you too dramatic about it, but I don't think it's a stretch to say the principles of military leadership are millennia old. Uh, humans have been in conflict for a long time. And they've needed the ability to lead humans in this very 
disorienting and dangerous, scary and emotional place uh, for a long time. So it's very much a study and a science in the military. Uh, I would say, you know, there's a little bit of a caricature about military leadership that uh, that despite having served in the infantry and special operations, I, I didn't find, um, which is this notion that military leadership is about hierarchy and shouting. Uh, and, and I don't, I didn't find that. Um, and I would say the, um, the statute of limitations on that, on its effectiveness is pretty short, whether you're in the military or, or outside of it. Um, your ability to just shout at and, and sort of bludgeon people uh, may or may not be effective in the short term, but but I would put forth two thoughts. One, uh, it's not going to be effective over the long term. And two, I don't know what you call that, but you don't call that leadership. Um, well, sir, I, 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 just one last thought on all of this and then and then uh, curious what, where, what you think. I think the military, I had the privilege to serve um, uh, in special operations and, and in other context around really good leaders. And, and I think one thing is common that they do. Um, they, uh, they give their organization an identity and they give it a purpose. You are here, you are a part of this group and this team uh, and you belong to it and it belongs to you. And we have a purpose. We are here for a reason. We are here to go do that. Uh, and if the leader can keep people in that mindset, then um, uh, you really sort of become subsumed by your organization's performance rather than the sort of top of the pyramid. You're really sort of the chief facilitator of, of its excellence rather than your own. So in the military, that is the standard. That, that is what happens in most, uh, according to you, happens in most areas that you're here for a purpose and, and, and it's pretty straightforward as far as what that is. And everybody on the team aligns to that. As you know, as I know, as Rich, you know, uh, in academia, in the corporate world, outside of that, um, ambiguity comes in, right? Uh, a lot of ambiguity. Um, and people that don't have such, um, like you said, it's almost a gift that military leadership background and the structure around it um, seems like it's a gift based on my friendship with you and others um, that served in the military because you take that with you. And I don't want to put, put words in your mouth if that's not true. Uh, but how, do you, how is that leadership um, really your, the backbone, right? I think that that's really sort of shaped your leadership style. How, does that, how has that evolved into a world where people are ambiguous in nature? The purpose is not necessarily clearly defined. Like, what do you do to sort of mix with the real world, so to speak, in a leadership capacity. And I've seen you done it, but do it um, in at CU. Uh, but I'd love to hear you articulate that if you can. You know, tell me what you think. I mean, I think the good and the bad news, and, and this is going to sound, I don't mean this in a self-congratulatory way. I mean, I, I was the beneficiary of, of the military's excellence in this area. Um, but the good and the bad news, I think, is you get to see leadership distilled and done well. And then that leaves an imprint on you where you go elsewhere. And, and um, certainly there are times where um, you're disappointed in the leadership that you're seeing. Um, you know, two things come to mind in the academic context. One is that I think 
people tend to poo-poo the notion of their mission statement. And to me, those are the most critical words you're going to write down as a leader in conversation uh, with your leadership and, and with your team in terms of um, what are we about? And when you're in that ambiguity, all these different things you could pursue, all these different things that you could um, attempt, all these different things that have relative degrees of value, and yet you're forced to make calls, right? You have to lead, which means you have to make decisions. Leadership is about choices. And when you choose something, you're choosing away from something else. You're saying no to something to say yes to something else. Um, a clear sense of your mission statement to me has always been vital in trying to understand why you make the choices as a leader that you make. What are we about? What is our purpose? Why are we here? And I think that subordinates in general can sniff out if your purpose isn't rock solid, if you're sort of doing in the moment what gives you the most prestige or what gives you the most, but you're a bit rudderless in terms of the purpose of the organization. And that purpose can be uh, revisited and should be uh, as time and conditions change, but it shouldn't be sort of negotiable in the moment. The only other thing I would say, and again, I think it contrasts with the, um, the sort of notion of, of bombastic military leadership I think there are a lot of uh, leadership advice that I don't find great stock in about hitting the ground in the first 90 days and making moves and changes and planting your flag and showing uh, your sort of initiative. You're going to need initiative and energy. But I always felt like the, the best leaders I came in, the first thing they did was diagnosis. The first thing they did was listen and hear. There's time enough um, uh, to, to make strong moves, but there's a degree of empathy uh, needed in leadership. And, and at least in my experience, you know, guys will uh, literally run at the machine gun nest for you if, if they believe that you believe in a higher purpose than yourself and subordinate yourself to the unit and its welfare. So it, uh, that's a little bit of a rambling response, but I would say strengthen mission statement and leadership that's more about the team than your own sort of prestige that you get from sitting in the captain's chair. And just as a follow-up, and I want to hear from Rich as well, how do you adjust when people don't understand that or get that that's a, that like that even unknowingly, I think, I think you're correct. I think people don't like ambiguity and whether they articulate or realize that or not, uh, the, the comfort level or discomfort that comes with, having that ambiguity, um, I think people don't like it. I think they like some semblance of structure, but it's not like you said, it's about listening and whatnot. How do you adjust in worlds outside of the military? Um, is it patience? Is it the listening piece? Like, how do you adjust? Because not everybody has that mindset, understands, agrees with that, that mindset around the structure that you're talking about um, to a degree structure, but also sort of this systematic approach to leadership, how do you how do you adjust? How would you adjust? You know, to me, tell me what you think. I mean, I, I come back to this notion as, of leadership as choice, and and you know, I, I read this one time. It was about writing. It said that you know, good writing is about making choices, uh, and you can tell a text becomes long, and it becomes meandering when people avoid choice. I find that same dynamic in leadership a lot. And so I think it's, it can be frustrating when senior level leadership, uh, the leadership that's above your level, 
wants certain outcomes, but it just kind of wants more of everything. And, and that leads to a level of fatigue in a team and the units that realize that, hey, we're just sort of toiling under moving goalposts rather than having a clear and focused sense of what we want. So I, to my mind, at least, and, and I've had some success with this in academia, you know, there's a level of managing up where you have to say, hey, over the next 12 months, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to do them to this level. And the bill payer for that, the things that I'm not going to do, given the sort of finitudes of physics, right? Like we have so many people, we have so many hours, right. um, and, and we need to run a sustainable ship that performs well in the out years as well. We, we can't just burn the team. Um, uh, getting that sense of clarity and hopefully if, if it's negotiable, having some buy-in from the team members themselves as in, Hey guys, this team is about research excellence. That's what we're going to do. Um, but I find most of the things that should be clear are sort of left fuzzy and most of the priorities that should indeed be prioritized are instead just co-equal values that kind of lack of clarity, I find, uh, stifles a team rather than leads it. Excellent. Excellent. Rich. Mm. Wow. There's so many places to go with this. And it's so eloquent about how you describe these things, Lloyd. I don't know where I want to begin. I think a, a couple of things pop into my, into my bald head. One is, uh, the mission statement piece I really do buy. I, I absolutely uh, swallow that Kool-Aid, uh, on, uh, with one gulp and, I'm sure Al does too. Uh, and then he went to the word I would have used instead of mission statement. You went there when you said the word purpose. And in my mind, purpose is even deeper than mission statement. Uh, when someone uh, emotionally as well as intellectually uh, uh, internalizes what, what, the, what the purpose is above and beyond anything else that you speak about. What I was wondering about, I, I was, was wondering about and piggyback off something that Al also kind of alluded to uh, you mentioned something about situational diagnosis. That's what I called it anyway when I heard it. And I was wondering about the uh, extent to which you see the need to develop individual capacity to not only engage the purpose, but to acquire whatever uh, skills and competencies and dispositions that, that individuals have to have to be, to be one insofar as meeting that overall purpose. Yes, sir. Let me let me make sure I understand you correctly. I mean, the way I hear that is is sort of this: whatever size team you are, uh, it's it's probably undeniably true that as a whole, with all the brains on your team, you're smarter than the the individual leader. And and so the question becomes: how do you set up a structure and culture that unlocks that collective intelligence? Uh, rather than stifles it. Um, um, and, and to my mind, I think the military doesn't use these terms, but, but I do. There's a karmic aspect to leadership. And that's that yeah. people can smell, people on your team can smell over time. If you are in fact sincere, if you're sincere about subordinating yourself to the collective purpose, and if you're sincere about subordinating yourself to the welfare of your team members, uh, and if they believe that, and that's not a speech you can make, that, that's not a sort of thing that you can just say, it's a thing you have to earn and it takes a little bit of time. But if people believe that, then they have trust. Um, 
And that's when you can start to unlock the high, I think the higher orders of their minds and this collective intelligence. And it's a fragile thing. And I think the moment that you step into a more ego laden brand of leadership, you can dent and destroy it. So well said, Lloyd. Yeah. Amen. Bridge, you had something else? Well, again, the collective intelligence you know, in my, is, was one point. In fact, I, something you said a moment before the collective intelligence, but we have, we have a saying among us, among Al, myself, and Anthony, where we say none of us is smarter as all of us unless we're stupid together. <laughs> and that goes back to capacity yeah. again you know, of individuals to create the whole big, with a W, bigger than the whole, bigger than the, what the individuals are able to do. And then it translates over to um, the innovation word. How do you, how do you foster the kind of a, a approach among, a, what I understand to be a hierarchy, like we're well, not a hierarchy, I'm sorry, I take that back, uh, where, where are, are you, the folks who uh, answer to you are comfortable enough with you to um, create, not just brainstorm, but create. Sir, forgive me. Can you repeat that question? I, I understand that question a little oh, bit. Wow. You were thinking about it in terms of innovation, and that's the place where I'm, uh, I'm grasping. Yeah, well, that's, I, I, you're right. Because I was trying to make, the, I was trying to make the, the the transfer from the collective intelligence piece over to creativity, because in innovation. But innovation and creativity aren't necessarily uh, 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 functions of being of being smart together, but rather having a different uh, disposition to approach it. And not everybody knows how to how to get a group to be creative, to be innovative. Here, here, makes sense. Here, and I think, sir, it makes perfect sense. And and I would say um, most people aren't realistic about their expectations of, of innovation. So I, I work on military innovation a great deal. Um, people don't want to, don't like what I have to say about it, but it needs to be said. Um, innovation implies risk. Innovation implies failure. Innovation implies that uh, there will be a loss of optimization and efficiency at what we're currently doing. Uh, and in innovation, there will be winners and losers. And so people think of, of innovation as a sort of unalloyed good. Um, and by the way, oftentimes you won't know for a good long period of time if the innovation itself was effective. Yes. So yes. I think uh, you need an environment where um, people feel free to take risks, where they realize even if some of those risks, by the way, are not going to pay out, they're going to blow up in our face and we're going to have invested in them time and prestige and resources to be back at this same point later and poorer for it. Uh, if it's real innovation, there's a good chance that's going to happen. Uh, I think all the more reason that an empathetic and karmic approach to leadership allows people to take risks without the notion that they'll be ostracized inside the team or that they'll find a leader who conveniently pins failure on them. And yet, you know, victory has a thousand fathers, owns all victory. I got to recommend a book to you, Al. Can guess the word, the book. Uh, but I, I love that comic word, and I'm not a new age type altogether. But I love that comic word that you use. Uh, but there's a book called "Use It for Your Dissertation: The Theory U, Letter U." It's by um, Richard. Richard mentioned Sharma. that. Yeah, uh, Sharma. Uh, Richard mentioned that. I've I actually used that book in a course when I took my coursework for my uh, doctoral work. 
So Lloyd, I want to uh, first of all commend you. I'm not sure uh, you have a little visitor there. So you answered that quest that last question not just eloquently, intelligently, thoroughly, but with um, the joy of having your your kids, uh, you know, running around and yelling in the background and having fun there. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Can you yeah. say hi? You've met Al before. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Hope you're feeling okay. We're we're live, so wait. You got you can say hello to everybody. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Al. Tell me what you think. I mean, I think you all know this better than I do as a new father. But family, it's the same same thing. Same yeah. principles. Same. Yeah. Like you can't you can't bludgeon a family into compliance. Uh, you can't, you, you can't uh, cajole them. You know, you have to actually lead and inspire and there has to be trust that, that, um, that you're subordinate to the unit. And, and uh, Dr. Bernardo, back to your point, you know, if we're in the business of creating rather than just performing, then the risks are higher. And I think the uh, all the more important to have that, uh, that trust among teammates um, and, and all the more that you need a, a sort of a flatter team. Um, I, I would just come back That's to the good. notion. I think those first those first few months matter, but they matter for reasons other than what people typically think. They don't matter for the vision statement that you're like this team will rise, uh, and you and you attack the first ninety days. They matter for the quality of the connection that you're able to make and the chances that you seize to demonstrate your sincerity of, of purpose. Uh, and then there's time for diagnosis and, and, and time for performance, but that's not coming in the door, sort of swinging the hammer, you know? So, so well said, uh, Lloyd, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to wrap up. Um, uh, I'll just say a few things, Rich, and then Lloyd, will give you the final, uh, thought on this. Uh, you met, I heard that trust word so many times, uh, when you were talking, uh, I had a, a former, uh, superintendent boss, we used to talk about a flat level conversation and that anyone uh, was welcome to come. In fact, that's how I ended up working in a district back on Long Island in an administrative role. Um, I went in and, and had a discussion about what, how I thought we could improve uh, the schools and the district overall. And he had that approach with everyone. He was welcoming uh, you. There was trust in the fact that if you tried something and it failed, it was okay, we'll try something else. Learn from it, move on, and try something else. Um, and I think that that aspect um, and and how well you articulate um, your thoughts to others, I've witnessed firsthand how well you've articulated your thoughts here. Uh, it is um, uh, a, a lessons for anyone who who needs to learn about leadership in general. You articulated it so well, as you always do, as I've seen you do. But it's great to see you do it live and on our show, uh, so that people. Uh, are aware of, of uh, Leadership Lessons for Life uh, by Lloyd Thrall. Really, really great stuff. Uh, Rich. Yeah, I, I have to say, I so much appreciate listening to you. Very, very eloquent. And, and eloquence, one thing, and, and thoughtfulness and reflection is, is, uh, is the bonus of the eloquence, actually. You can be eloquent about nothing sometimes, <laughs> but when you, when, you, when you can be reflective and, and, and as thoughtful as you are, uh, indicates a deepness in you that would make anyone want to want to work with and, and or follow you and, uh, to do the kind of things that you're talking about. But one more book to mention. Anthony gets mad when I do this, and Al gets mad at me too. <laughs> uh, when you talk about trust, it's a great little book uh, 
uh, called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by uh, Lencioni. And the, the bottom of the pyramid is trust. And everything grinds back, drives back, embeds itself uh, back into the relationship issue and, the, and, and trust factor. Can't be creative. Can't take those kinds of risks that you're talking about unless people trust each other uh, to empower each other rather than to uh, find reasons to tear each other down. Then there's no ideas rolling around and you're going to continue to do, continue the, the insanity that just, we endure from too many places as, as it is so, uh, more than we want to admit to. So I appreciate meeting you and I hope to uh, read that dissertation one of these days. Wonderful. Thanks, Dr. Barato. Al, thanks so much. Great to be here. And, yeah. and thanks for having me. Thank you, Lloyd. Always a pleasure. And it's good, good seeing you as well. Thank you. Everybody.